Okay, welcome back to Firewall. I am your host, Bradley Tusk. I'm here with our friend Hugo Lindgren. Uh, it is a Tuesday episode, which means that Hugo and I talk about the different issues of the day. Um, here's what we're going to talk about today. There's some polling that came out uh, from the Times about the Republican primary from CBS News on Biden approval. I want to chat about that. Um, the New Yorker had a really amazing story by Patrick Radden Keefe about Larry Gagosian, the world's most successful art dealer. I want to talk about that. Um, might talk a little about Oppenheimer, which I liked and Hugo did not. Um, Nicole Gelinas, who is um, a kind of— Is that how you pronounce Nicole's name? I thought so. I don't know. I've never heard it pronounced. But I've she, only ever she's read She's like an urban policy expert. Usually pretty good, too. And writes for the New York Post and, yeah. and wrote a piece. This one, I think, was in The Times about Dick Ravitch's le legacy. That's right. And I kind of want to talk more about just sort of the lack of civic leadership today in New York City. Yeah, okay. Um, and then if we have time, uh, we can talk about UFOs. But before we do any of that, um, on Saturday, a woman sitting in a parked car right outside of our podcast studio and bookstore, literally, if this were Saturday and you and I were sitting here in the studio, we would be looking at her, was shot in the head. Um, randomly, they don't think that she was the intended target. Um, but nonetheless... Oh, they don't think she was the intent target? Just, just from a, what I read. Okay. I, I haven't talked to the cops. Um, but it seems to me that we have to sort of face the reality that we do not have a handle on the gun problem and the shooting problem in New York City. And we did for a very long time, and we no longer do. And our actions around it these days are things like calling on Washington or just political bullshit like that. Um Stop and frisk was a very controversial policy that, that the Giuliani Bloomberg administration used to try to get guns off of people and generally cash criminals. Um, it was ruled to be unconstitutional. Um, it was ruled to be overly discriminatory towards people of color. Um, I, I think there has to be a way to bring back some version of stop and frisk that takes guns off of people and takes guns off the streets and doesn't right now there's no disincentive to carrying a gun because you're not going to get caught um, and once people are carrying guns they're going to use them and then innocent people like the woman sitting in that car outside she, of our did, window did she die i last i heard she was in stable condition okay but i don't know um uh we can't have a city like this right and we can't be so worried about um you know everyone, you know, kind of identity politics to the point where anybody can get shot. And by the way, the vast majority of people getting shot are people in low-income communities and people of color, right? So I, I'm not in any way saying bring back stop and frisk, but but I do think that Mayor Adams and the NYPD need to figure out a way to get more aggressive. They need to figure out a way to get guns off of people. And I think that if you're not actually in some way stopping people and checking them for it, um, then you create a culture of lawlessness, which is what we have right now. So I don't know the answer. I know that people on the left would love to hear this and start screaming that I'm calling for a return of stop and frisk. But what I am saying is we can't live in a world um, where we have no control over shootings and guns. And if you think about it here, my employees are rattled. I think we'll probably lose customers. We're already a money-losing business. I see this this bookstore as a service to the community. We're the only free podcast studio anywhere that I'm aware of. The event space is free to the literary community and lower side community. The people who work here get the same kind of health care as people in my venture capital fund. I am doing everything I can to make this a great place and a gift to New York City and I can't do it if my employees don't want to come to work and customers don't want to come in because people are getting shot on our block. Um, and so 
both because the city has gotten way too dangerous and because it just makes it impossible for sort of daily civic life to function as it should, um, the mayor needs to figure something out. And I get that his hands are tied, and I get that between the no cash bail and no stop and frisk, he has a lot less tools to fight crime than his predecessors had. So I'm sympathetic to that. But with that said, you run for office, you say, put me in charge, you're in charge, you figure it out. But he's got to do something. Um, and you mentioned uh, just before we started recording that you're going to bring on a security guard too. So yeah, we're that... going to hire security for the bookstore, which, by the way, is, I already lose an incredible amount of money uh, running this place. Now I'm going to lose even more money paying for security. Um, but, you know, we live in a world right now that that's somewhat lawless, and I, I can't not protect my employees, and I can't not protect my customers, at least the best that I can. So, you know, yeah, we're, we're hiring security. Um, but... You know, do I think that the the person standing in the corner of my store is going to do anything? They're not going to deal with gun problems, right? They, they they can at least, you know, in an emergency situation, kind of take control and get people safe. Um, if we have someone in the bookstore who is being unruly, we had an incident last week with someone who was drunk, uh, they can deal with that. But yes, I'm going to hire security to try to, you know, reduce the chances of any type of incident. But my hiring security has zero impact on gun violence in New York City. I'm just curious about what other uh, we you know we were here once uh, recording an episode where where there was like some scuffle out front. It was kind of funny. It wasn't like yeah, it was really, a fight. It wasn't, so it wasn't scary, yeah, right? But but I'm curious of what you've heard from the staff and everything about just the general environment here. Obviously, a shooting is. A I mean, this is not the first time that something has happened. You know, we we've had other shootings on this block. This was just the one that happened to like when you look at the story. Um, in the New York Post about it, the photo in the background is this. And what they say is right in front of a podcast studio, which was our <laughs> podcast studio oh, that we're sitting in right now. It's unfortunate that um, we have to do that to get to Yeah. The so Post. look, I mean, do, do I think that people see Orchard between Stanton and Houston as a, a high crime, high risk area? No. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to provide this, this service to the community we're not going to be able to provide a place for people to go buy independent, you know, an independent bookstore where people can buy books and a podcast studio that's free and everything else um, if people don't feel safe coming to work or walking through the door here. And so, you know, I think both just our general public safety and also our economy are both severely at risk here. Um, do you want to talk about the Biden poll? Yeah, from, so there were, there so were two tough, polls that came pivot. out this morning. <laughs> and just, just quickly had a few thoughts on them. So one was a Times poll of Republican primary voters um, showing that Trump was just way ahead. Trump was at 54, DeSantis was at 17, and everybody else was at either 3 or 2. Um, and in every category, you know, in every way, Trump was absolutely dominating. And at the same time, a CBS News poll came out that showed Biden's approved, disapprove at 4060. Um, which is pretty bad. So um, what I'm kind of find interesting is Donald Trump is the best thing Joe Biden has going for him. I think that um, just like Biden was probably the only Democrat who could uh, definitively have beaten Trump in 2020 like he did, um, I think that Trump now may be the only Republican that Biden can defeat in 2024. If you are DeSantis, I, I'm not sure that your strategy doesn't pivot to just kind of hoping that Trump, for whatever legal or health reasons, somehow doesn't make it all the way through the process. And then you, as the number two, step up, which would mean you kind of become friendly to Trump and to everyone else because you want to pick up his voters and support. And final thought, which is, you know, if Biden truly is at 40, 60, 
This may be the first time in a long time the Democrats are lucky that we have an electoral college and not a national popular vote. Um, if you had a national popular vote with a president this unpopular, you're going to have a lot of people inspired to come out against him and a lot of voters. And there was another piece in one of the papers today about sort of, you know, black turnout being a major area of concern for Democrats in 2024. Um, people who might like Biden but don't like him enough to bother to show up and vote. And if you put those two things together um, for the first time, if we had a national popular vote, you could see the Democrat losing it. Um, the Electoral College, in many ways, which usually is sort of a safety valve for Republican candidates, I think in this case may end up being a safety valve for Biden. So all these prosecutions of Trump look like they're doing what some people feared they'd do, which is sort of give him kind of some some wind in his sails. I mean, it, it, it's not, it's, well, it's obviously not dissuading any Republican voters. No, and that, and that actually, if you're Biden, may be very good, right? Because ultimately, I think you want Trump as your nominee. It's it's a terrifying notion for the rest of us because that means right. he Trump could win as president. Right. Um, but I think he's the, the, the best bet for Biden to get reelected. Um, and at the same time, you hope, though I don't know, I haven't seen any data around this, that independent voters, you know, more moderate Republicans, more conservative Democrats will care if Trump is convicted of espionage and treason, will care if Trump is, is convicted of, you know, inciting a, a riot and potential coup of the U.S. government. I don't think they care about the Stormy Daniels stuff. But so clearly it's only helping him in a Republican primary. I think the question is, what is this doing to potential general election voters who maybe could go either way or maybe would turn out and now won't or either way around? So do you think that that Biden's sort of um, sort of relatively low profile is a big part of his approval problem? Like, like I mean, you know, that people are supposed to vote their pocketbook, they always say, right? So yep. the economy is doing far better than people anticipated. It looks like you know, the soft landing that people thought was like this super long shot seems to be kind of evolving. Yeah, I mean, like, he's, again, as we said in this podcast, like, he's a really good president. Like, he's done an excellent but, but what, job. But what does a good president mean if, like, he doesn't have the trust of the public, right? Well, so, so our friend Howard, who we're recording with tomorrow, remember yeah. once um, Bloomberg in the third term, his, his numbers were down significantly from the second term, and Howard sort of coined the phrase, 40 is the new normal, meaning it used to be that if your approval rating was below 50, that meant that you were clearly not succeeding. But the nature and tenor of the world has changed to the point where um, negativity is so strong that 40 is the new 50. So, you know, look, I think for Biden, it's, it's a combination of just a, a hyperpolarized environment, Twitter, Internet more broadly, cable TV, Trump. Um, his own kid is not doing him any favors. His age, his VP is really unpopular. And even things like the economy, like inflation. I mean, down. when you make that list, I'm like, oh, my God, it's hopeless. It's not hopeless. Right. But, 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 when, but when you even when you talk about the economy, I think he's done a, he and, and Jerome Powell, should, they, they both deserve credit here, um, have done a really good job in kind of managing inflation, um, hopefully bringing us to something of a soft landing. But... You know, I don't think it's immediate like the Fed puts out a report and every voter is like on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website being like, oh, things are great now for Biden. Like they remember that eggs cost too much like a year ago or six months ago. And so in some ways, Biden's lucky that inflation has been falling well over a year before the election, because I think by the time that we get to November of 24, if we stay at this pace, um, people will see it hopefully as a good economy. 
it seems so that that the that his inability to get out there and be this kind of energetic wrap his arms around the country uh i mean it just it just seems like that that problem is going to seem worse and worse as trump sort of you know wins the republican primary gets you know, gets his huge crowds going, and 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 Biden, by comparison, is just going to look so weak. Yeah, look, Biden. The, the two things Biden has going for him is one, Trump, right? And Trump right now is slated to be on trial for uh, espionage during the general election, right? right? Number one, number two is is Dobbs, right? So the Democrats were expected to get wiped out for a lot of the same reasons that I just laid out in the twenty twenty two midterms, and they did incredibly well, right? They they barely lost the House, they kept the Senate. Um, and I think a big reason for that is the impact of Dobbs. You know, Republicans for years and years and years, you know, ran elections in order to be able to appoint pro-life judges and justices to the Supreme Court, and they succeeded, right? Their plan ultimately worked. Trump got elected, appointed three very pro-life judges. Um, Dobbs came up, overturned Roe v. Wade. But, you know, and look, we live in New York City. Uh, I'm involved in, in Mayday Health, teleabortion, so clearly, like, I'm not an objective person here. But I haven't met a single woman who has said, like, I'm glad the Supreme Court took away my rights, right? Like, every woman I talk to feels like it's not just like, oh, this is bad because people who need to get an abortion now won't be able to have a, the medical procedure or medication that they need. It's that this is my body. These are my rights. You took them away from me. Um, and Trump is the guy that did that. So um, there's no scenario for the Democrats that's better, and even if it's kind of far-fetched or a long shot or whatever, than Biden just hanging in there running. I mean, the problem is this. There's, there's, if, if, let's say Biden, you know, breaks a hip today and he's, he's done, right? right. Um, Kamala Harris is going to say, I am the presumptive nominee. I'm the vice president. I should not be challenged. I should have an open path. But they will challenge her, right? For sure. <laughs> but you're going to have this battle royale, and there's already concern about, you know, just like... Um, Trump has to worry about, you know, turnout between people who are not, for people who are not hardcore-based Trumpers. You know, Biden won the primary primarily by, you know, winning South Carolina at exactly the right moment, and that was all through Jim Clyburn and black voters. So if Harris loses the primary, which she likely would, given how unpopular she is and given that she didn't even make it to Iowa last time. Black voters stay home. Some. And right. the problem is, you know, Arizona, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, some Nevada, some of these states are so tight that if black turnout declines by 10% because people are like, she got railroaded, if she were a white guy, they would have just given her the nomination, um, that's a huge, huge problem. And so um, while in theory there ought to be a Democrat that can pull above 40% and should be a stronger candidate, um, I don't know how that person ultimately gets the turnout they need in a bitter primary against Harris. Okay, magic wand question. Uh, unless that other new person is also African-American. So in some ways, if you were going to replace Biden at the top of the ticket and it wasn't going to be with Harris, um, I think you need someone that can continue to draw significant black support. So I don't know if that's that's Cory Booker or Wes Moore, although he's really young, or whoever, but that would be the one potential solution to that. But then that person may not be a great general election candidate overall. Cory didn't do great in his No, uh, I don't think he made a tie either. Right. So I'm going to give you the magic wand that you like to hand out. Yeah. But it's it's kind of a limited magic wand. I don't okay. even know if we can call it a magic wand. But it's like a stick. The <laughs> we're going to give you a little like a, a like a divining rod that yeah. just sort of so the Biden administration calls you purely hypothetically. 
and they say, Bradley, we just want you to figure out one thing to do, right? You're not taking over the campaign. We're not because, you know, you're not, you're not going to get the full magic wand, but you're going to get one thing to help us win. Like what's a, is I mean, it, I, I, look, I've, I've talked to people there about some of these ideas, mm-hmm. who, not, not, not in the last few weeks, but, um, and uh, look, the, the stuff that I've talked about is not going to surprise you because there's stuff that I talk about in this podcast. One would be protecting kids on the internet, which the, the technical solution is to repeal Section 230. So you would just be like, this is me. This is, I'm going I'm to spearhead this for you and, and get Biden on the right side of this. You could run a big campaign around that because I think parents, by the way, I do, my guess is one thing that unites people of all parties or, or non-parties or whatever else is parents terrified about what their kids are finding on the internet and unable to do anything about it. Right. Right. So that's one issue. Okay. Um, issue. I was only going to ask you for one. Well, I gave three. Okay. So the, the <laughs> second was um, this teleabortion thing, I think specifically because um, this is their best shot at winning is massive turnout of in protest against Dobbs. Um, and because teleabortion is controversial and it's different. Like, so when Planned Parenthood talks about, hey, we're going to ha- help put women on buses and get them from a red state to a blue state, like, A, it's so not scalable. And B, it, it just, I, I don't think it it happens in a significant enough way that anyone's paying much attention to it. Um, the upside of teleabortion is if you're the state of South Carolina or Mississippi or whatever it is, it's really hard to catch someone doing it, right? Because you're not tracking people's keystrokes and you can't open every piece of U.S. mail. And so as a result... Um, that is a truly controversial issue. I would really lean into it if I were them um, and really, really make the case that, you know, blue states ought to be passing the kind of shield laws that we got passed here in New York that give doctors tremendous protection. See what you could do on a federal legal level to provide more protection. You know, keep making sure that, that it's clear that the FDA says that, the, you know, the, the two drugs uh, are, are legal. Um, so I'd lean into that. And, and third is maybe this is back to sort of the kids' agenda. And it's a little more local, but, but I don't think New York City is the only place. You have the illegal pot shops here. You have the fentanyl problem across the country. You have the trank problem across the country. Again, this is not a partisan issue. Really. I don't think meth has gone away. Yeah, and all the other problems too, opioids and meth and everything else. Um, I don't know if it's a war on drugs, but but I think you have this huge problem impacting millions of people, tens of millions of people, terrifying parents. And I just don't see either party talking about this in a meaningful way, other than the usual, like, now you get a million years in jail for fentanyl sales instead of, you know, 100,000. Like, all right, big fucking deal. Um, and so to me, those are three issues that um, are, are, I think are, A, not, uh, two of them are not that partisan, one's highly partisan, um, and, and could all be winners. Do you see the 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 policy though on the drug front? Like, what would so you you have a very clear sort of it's, vision it's, on those first two and the third tricky, one? It's tricky, right? Like, because look, we know that my view has been legalization. Although I have to with say, enforcement of of certain others. Like, I mean, it's not obviously like everything legal. No, all a, the time. a strictly a limited but legal set of drugs that people can obtain in state-run stores. Um, like kind of some states have state liquor stores um, with massive enforcement against anybody else who attempts to compete with them. Um, that's what I would do. And I would, the way that you would solve the fentanyl problem or the trank problem is if everything that went to these stores was inspected and tested before it was sold, um, then um, you'd be able to ensure that. Mm-hmm. Now, people may still choose to get drugs on the street, but if the price was relatively competitive, 
Um, and this is, you know, not a money, this may even be a money losing thing, but still, if the price were relatively competitive, you have to imagine that, like, there was a big story in the New York Post today about someone who just said, like, look, I'm a casual cocaine user, and I got a blood test, and I had, like, all fentanyl and all the shit in my blood. This person's lucky they're not dead. Um, I would imagine most people who are buying drugs illegally uh, that have fentanyl or trank or other potential things like that in them would choose to go to the, the legal place instead. And so that would be the policy solution. Um, should we talk about the Larry Gagosian yeah, uh, story? That was a great story. Yeah. So, so uh, I, I recommended this to, to Bradley, and it, it cuts against uh, his, uh, it's not exactly a philosophy, but one of the things that Bradley's mentioned um, is that the thing that's fallen out of your media consumption is long magazine stories, right? Well, well especially so like, the New Yorker, by the way. Oh, really? Because you know we're having a guy on who uh, summarizes the New Yorker every week. Later yeah, in the podcast. yeah. Uh, he, he, he's going to tell us everything he didn't read and what's been good. And by the way, <laughs> that's actually highly useful. I'm going to ask him to create a new category for me, which okay. is really interesting stuff where I'm not told how to think. Right? <laughs> okay. I fucking hate being told how to and think. And you think that's the problem? I think it? the New Yorker has become a magazine that now completely combines opinion with journalism. Um, with like a heavy sort of self-righteous hectoring tone through all of it. Like, okay. It's unreadable. So okay. look, with that said, there are plenty of great articles in The New Yorker. I'm not willing to start each one of them on the hopes that it's going to be. So maybe this guy will prove useful or I could just not read The New Yorker. Well, what I love about him is that in his, in his newsletter, he generally just picks one. You know, like one story. To so then read. I'm going to ask him to please have some sort of like self-righteousness political barometer in there, too. Like, well, one of the things great about the Gagosian story was it, it was a incredible article about the rise of a person in a really interesting industry who used a lot of unorthodox tactics. Some were probably ethical. Some were clearly unethical um, to get to where he is. But it wasn't a story about like, you know, partisan politics or the or even though the story was about very rich people it wasn't just this broadside against the rich right it was a really thoughtful and patrick Braden keeps an amazing writer but the, be the best it was a really thoughtful exploration of here's what it took for this guy who came from relatively modest beginnings to become this billionaire most successful. Not too modest, but yes. Yeah, I mean, not like super, it wasn't like homeless, but he wasn't, <laughs> he didn't, the art world is incredibly rich and snooty and status obsessed, and he didn't grow up with that kind of, he didn't, he didn't No, he to, and he started a poster shop, you yeah, know. Yeah, he's in, selling on the beach, right? He didn't go to Dalton or something like that, right? <laughs> so <Dalton>. like, um, <laughs> I didn't say Trinity to be nice to you. Oh, thank you. Um, so, um, and yet, uh, so one great thing about the story is it charts his rise and the tactics that he used without really being overly judgmental either way, right? And that's what makes good writing good writing is lay it all out there, give people information, let them reach their own conclusions. If you hammer them over the head with here's what you should think, here's what's right, here's what's wrong, it's lazy and bad writing. And it was interesting the way he kind of filtered in these, not exactly critiques, but you know, the, the, the warts kind of emerged throughout the course of the piece as opposed to like, here's the case against Larry Gagosian. Yeah, um, that was like there was that summer Redstone book that we were going to try to read both read, remember? Right. And the first five chapters were just here's the case against them, and it was like I stopped reading it because I was yeah. like, I agree he's probably a piece of shit, but you know what you've shown me? He's a piece of shit who's not interesting. <laughs> so why the fuck am I going to read more of this book? 
So there was one aspect. I mean, there were many aspects of the of the Gagosian. Is it Gagosian or yes, Gagosian? Yes. I like that you know how to pronounce that. I, I had some exposure to the artwork. Have, do you have some exposure to Larry? You ever tell? No, me? no. Okay. No. Um, I liked his. I got to find my little notes here. They're in a different file. But the um, there were there was there was the he, he says that I think this is actually Patrick's words, not not Larry's. But he doesn't. He doesn't like um, he doesn't like self reflection because he thinks it makes him lose his edge. Well, it's interesting. So I I, I did think that that was really interesting too. And, and in some ways, so let me lay out. I wrote down like what are the qualities he has, or that it seems like he has, that allowed him to get from point A to point B, right? And these are not necessarily all good qualities. Um, and I don't know that I don't think I would want to be Larry Gagosian, but but you he, might want to be him for a day or a weekend. Yeah, it'd be cool to like live amongst all of that art for a weekend. Sure, that'd be cool. Um, but I don't know, going to like art dinners and stuff, that doesn't sound too exciting to me. No, I agree. Um, so, all right, here were the ones. I had no shame, no fear, talent, as you said, no self-reflection, ruthless, can see things others can't, good sense of timing, paranoid, relentless, right? right. And, and the reason why I suspect he's actually not self-reflective, although again, I've never met the man, is... If you can cut corners left and right like he did, and the, the, the big one of the big critiques against him, other than just tremendous amounts of dishonesty, is um, he would represent uh, buyers and sellers on, the, uh, on both sides of the same transaction, which is considered to be a conflict of interest and unethical, and yet he that's basically how he made a lot of Well, he's money. basically like a market maker, really. Like, he just provides liquidity to these super high-end... Yeah, but it's not an arms-length transaction where the market is setting the price and he's just making it available. It's an asymmetry of information. Oh, yeah, no, no. I'm, I, so I, it, it's just, mar it just... Market maker implies some sort of, like, legitimate system. This right. is not a legitimate system, <laughs> right? This is a guy just sort of like manipulating people to make as much money as he can. Right, right. I mean, they don't go into the sort of the various tax implications of everything, and it seems like a big part of the service he provides is this kind of movement of goods, uh, you know, through jurisdictions, you know, getting wealth from one part of the, the, the world to another. Um, I mean, it, it, it doesn't go into that. And, yeah, and no, a lot of it is basically rich people sometimes are cash flush and they want to spend it on art. And sometimes they're cash poor and they need to unload their art. And in many ways, he becomes the conduit for that. Right. 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 Um, but but here's the point of self-reflection. that's go ahead. So interesting, which is it's much easier to be the way that he is and feel good about yourself and not hate yourself and not ultimately be a miserable human being if you have no self-reflection. So I have come to, in a weird way, admire people who completely lack self-reflection, maybe even people who are just sociopaths, because if you don't believe in an afterlife or reincarnation or any of that, which I don't, then ultimately, other than you know doing something wrong, getting in trouble for it in some way, the totality of your life is how you feel about yourself, right? Is what it comes down to. For the vast majority of people, because we have a conscience, we feel good about ourselves and we do good things and we feel bad about ourselves and we do bad things. If you lack a conscience, which means you can do whatever you want and never feel bad about yourself, I don't think I'd want to be that way, but maybe that's like an incredibly valuable, powerful tool because he can behave the way he wants to behave and justify it to himself and in no way feel any shame or guilt or anything else. So I would not want to be like that. I would not want to be Larry Gagosian, but I think that in many ways, if you said, what are one of the greatest strengths and assets that someone whose only goal is to maximize money and power and status at all costs, no matter what, um, lack of self-reflection? 
One of the things that's interesting, his, one of his skills seems to be that he conveys a sense of comfort with himself, right? So even though like they, he gets a little upset at a couple of things that the that uh, that Patrick sort of unearths, and he, he there's some hilarious little like he denies ever. Oh right, there's also weird. He was making like, a lot of lewd phone calls and stuff. Yeah, that's that's even separate. Like everything else kind of makes sense. Oh, the lewd phone lin- calls in a, bad, in a linear right? way, right? In that like, okay, he's maybe a scumbag, but that's how he succeeded, and he has no capacity for self reflection, and therefore actually he's kind of getting away with it. Right. Right. The lewd phone calls is just fucking weird. <laughs> The other, speaking of phone calls, though, one of the one of the facts I like this, uh, like, is that I guess I, it's probably not true anymore, but certainly early in his career, he would make like cold calls all the time. Um, yeah, and that is unbelievable. I mean, did you do that when you were starting your your a, a, practice? A, a little, but it's hard. Look, look, cold emails are easier. Right. right. That's why we get so much spam. Right. Right. So, um, no, I was thinking about that, which is like I I have some of the good and bad qualities that I just listed for for Gagosian, right? But then I was wondering like. Is this a good way, for example, you know, we're about to start raising our, our next venture capital fund, like the way that he did it, which is basically just calling rich people, like, you know, just like they spend money in art, they invest in venture capital and other asset classes too. So what if we did that? Now, on one hand, I think if Jordan and I just relentlessly called. And, and ultimately, right, let me ask you this yeah. question. I'm sorry to cut you off, but the, the, you know, one of the things that art clearly does, but other investments do too, is it, it gives people the reflection of themselves that they want, right? So if you're spending money on art, it's not just like, oh, you know, I, I, I own this thing. I like, I own this thing because I am right. a smart, sophisticated person. And, and they person. said the more, the more and more his reputation grew, the more that people wanted to buy something simply because he was the one selling it, right? right? If he's selling it, it must be good, right? So he, he created the market uh, and the validation in, in and of itself. So if, if Jordan and I just it's started like a cryptocurrency. relentlessly calling um, billionaires to invest in our fund, I don't think you'd have would, a hard time getting through to any, right? Yeah, but even if you just, even if you got a few meetings, I, th- I think the way it works is very different than the way that art might work. But but with that said, I'm kind of making an excuse, right? Which is I don't want to do that. So, <laughs> right. so when we raise our next fund, we will have dozens and dozens and dozens of meetings. When we raised fund one, we probably had close to 200 meetings. 200. Before, before we finally heard yes from people. Um, so we, you went like 0 for 199 before you got your first yes? Some, something like, I mean, it, you know, it's... it's That the, feels the almost like cold calls. I the mean, people almost. who say yes might have been meeting number 114, and right. then by the time you're at 183 or whatever, 99. three, four. <laughs> there are yes, but yeah. Right. Um, uh, so... Um, Look, fund two was easier to raise because fund one, you know, succeeded and whatever else. But, um, but it, yeah, I mean, I, even though I could give you 20 reasons why the Gagosian strategy wouldn't work in venture capital, the reality is it probably would to the extent of maybe not those specific tactics. But if you have that level of relentlessness and no shame and no pride and no ego at all, those are also incredibly valuable tools. Look, one thing that I always thought was great, I criticize Chuck Schumer a lot on this podcast, but one thing that I thought was great when I worked for him is Chuck didn't really have an ego, meaning whatever he, Chuck was relentless in wanting and needing things, and he pursued them in a Gagosian-like way, but he would deal with whoever he thought could help him do it. And it was like, he would talk to like the staff members of other senators all the time, which most senators wouldn't do because he just needed to try to get something from point A to point B. And it didn't bother him that this person was supposedly beneath him, right? And I thought that that was a great quality that he had. And Chuck also has 
no fear, no shame, total relentlessness. Um, and, you know, I guess he's the Larry who goes into politics. Should we spend two minutes talking about Oppenheimer? Yeah, you okay, didn't like it. Well, I, I don't want to say I didn't like it because I, I, it's not like I want my three hours back. Like, I, I, I love the idea of going to a, 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 a theater and seeing a big movie like that and a big subject and there's a ton of intelligence in it. And, like, I, it's, not like it's not like I didn't like it, like it's a piece of shit. Um, I just... I just had so many, I guess the, my, my feeling was Christopher Nolan is the creme de la creme of filmmakers. And there just seemed to be so many things wrong with the movie um, that I was surprised. Like what? Well, I, I you know, right from, I, I just thought all this stuff at the beginning with like the lightning and the atoms exploding. It's, it's just like, give me a break. Like they're about to, they're building a bomb. They're going to explode. Like I don't need to see like this representation of, like it just seemed dumb. Like it seemed like. Like, like, just start the story. Start telling me how this person did this thing. And I don't, don't show me, like, all this. Like, it wasn't impressive. I wasn't like, oh, my God. Like, I, it, the story's about the guy who built the bomb. Like, of course there's, like, shit about electrons and exploding lightning. I mean, but it was a movie where, other than the actual, like, bomb part, was just people talking. Right. And yeah, so I, I think he was trying to inject some level of, of activity. Except, you know, I, I, I just read Richard Rhodes's book, which is not what the, the, the movie's based on. He this, did The Building of the Atomic Bomb. Right. And then American the, Prometheus is the American book Prometheus the is, based the, on. is the biography of, of Oppenheimer yeah. himself, which I haven't read, but it's supposed to be amazing. The, the Richard Rhodes book is truly amazing, too. And it's just such an incredible sort of like, like, I mean, there is actual espionage that goes on when the, when the, when there's Russian spies in, in at Los Alamos. But, um, there's, there's so much cool stuff about the way the whole team was put together and everything that is just like not dramatized at all, which again, is it's just a choice, but then they make this choice to do the whole last, almost half the movie is these weird hearings about whether he's going to keep his security clearance. And I was like, well, I don't know the, the building of the bomb seems like a much bigger deal to me than that. And yeah, it, it had I a mean, lot of weight in the movie. So except a few things. So one, I, you could argue then that the movie just should have been shorter. I don't feel like they skimped on the building of the bomb part at all. So it wasn't like it. Now maybe they could have just ended the movie sooner, but I feel like that story was fully told, um, you know, the way that they told it in an entertaining way, by the way. I really liked the movie, and right. I found that I was amazed at. How, I would recommend how people fast, see it too. I didn't like it, like how fast don't three see hours it. went, right? Uh, to the point where, like, one time I really had to go to the bathroom, and I was just like engaged in this huge debate with myself of whether I wanted to get up. <laughs> Did and you? Then I, Did yes, you? because what I realized is when all you're doing is thinking about whether not to go to the bathroom, you're not yeah, paying attention to the movie. Right, anyway, you so go. You might as well just go. <laughs> um, but I would say the the reason why I, at least I think Nolan did did it this way is, you know, there's sort of two stories being told here, right? There's the specific kind of linear story of the making of the atomic bomb, right? The race against Germany, the decision to use it, all that, right? Then there's a broader story of the moral arc of Robert Oppenheimer, right? And he is an incredibly complicated, brilliant, conflicted, good and bad person at the same time. And, and Nolan showed a lot of his personal qualities, many of which were not particularly favorable. Um, but I think that the point of all of the sort of government hearings and everything on the second, on the back half of it, um, was to show that, you know, Oppenheimer, like all of us, a flawed human being, built something that we can debate whether or not should have happened, um, but it did. And then, you know, he kind of took a step back and said, okay, this exists. In his view, we need to put parameters around this because what we built is so dangerous that so he opposed the creation of the 
hydrogen bomb and kind of the nuclear arms race um, and everything else and was trying to use his public celebrity to put pressure on the military to not take this one thing that was necessary to end World War II and turn it into something that could just, you know, blow up the world with, with some small percentage of the arsenal. And the system killed him for it, right? Um, the system was happy to kind of use him for his talent um, to to build a bomb. They, they couldn't do it without him, it seems like. And at the same time, um, you know, once he said, okay, I'm more than a physicist, I am someone with a moral point of view, and I want to be able to use my platform um, to express my point of view, they destroyed him. Look, I think that's very well said, and and, and I, I agree. I think as a, as a movie, the problem is, is that the Robert Downey Jr. character, whose name I can't remember, but who's sort of in Strauss. charge of his hearings Strauss. and stuff. Strauss. I mean, he just takes over the movie. I mean, you almost forget it's a movie about Oppenheimer for the last like hour because it seems to be a movie yeah. about well, Strauss. And Downey Jr. is such a great actor. No, exactly. He's great. And he kind of steals the movie, which every actor should be trying to do. But I don't know if the director should be letting him. Like, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the Oppenheimer character just kind of recedes. Um, and then those scenes where... Like where Strauss, Robert Downey Jr. is not in, they just they're limp. So it just it just creates these weird things. But I agree with your overall point, and I think what you just expressed about the the reason for it is is, is and, and I will say well this. stated. Uh, Lyle was with me when we saw it. Fourteen year old kid loved it. He did loved really. It, oh wow! It. I thought you were going to say the opposite. No, absolutely. It was well, you got to get him out to see Barbie, right? Really, What's that happening? Yeah. Abby's seen Barbie twice. Um, she's seen it twice, and then concluded she didn't really like it. Um, but <laughs> Wait, so she liked it after the first one, and then no, you she saw it, and then she decided she wanted to write a Substack piece about it, and uh -huh. went back to kind of take notes and do more research and everything. That's else. impressive. Isn't it hard to get into Barbie? Isn't it? Did she go like she's a talented kid? I, I have no idea how she got in. I just know. That well, she also happened. went to Taylor Swift twice, right? That I know how that happened. Um, <laughs> that was that was me um so uh let me just wrap up with one thing i don't Go know ahead. If, i don't know much time but but the um the, the nicole gelinas piece about dick ravage so dick ravage was this kind of civic leader in new york city helped really lead the um efforts to sort of save the city from bankruptcy in the 1970s instrumental in the subway right took over the mta right. was able to really get a lot of money invested in that did a lot of really great things. I, I'd say I wasn't around for most of it. Like I was here as a kid, but then um, I knew Dick a little bit at the end of his life. So I, I don't know that I was really witness to the things that he did that was so impressive. So I think I was always like, why is everyone so in awe of this guy? Because he just wasn't what I saw. Right. But not bad, but just like some guy. Right. Um, but um, the point that I want to make, and it circles back to where we started this podcast, is Nicole's point is there's a tremendous lack of civic leadership in New York City today. And I would agree with her. I would say she's wrong in that there's tremendous civic leadership on the far left um, in terms of really talented union leaders and community organizers and people that I generally don't agree with, but I think they're very good at what they do. Mm -hmm. um, but for the rest of us, which is, you know, when you just talk about people's ideology, 95% of New Yorkers or something like that, when you get past sort of the, the progressive vocal you know, group, um, there is no one, right? And I saw this firsthand, you know, in 2015, 2016, when Bill de Blasio was just a total, total shitstorm of a mayor, a total disaster, and I felt like someone had to do something about it. I created this thing called New York City Deserves Better, and I publicly put myself out there and put my money into it and said I'm going to try to find a candidate to take him on in the primary. Nobody wanted any of it. No, because I think he's beatable. But it's not just, not just that I couldn't convince you know, Christine Quinn or Hakeem Jeffries or Scott Tringer or whoever to run. It's that, you know, there were some pastors that joined with me, but but separate from that, um, 
there were no civic leaders, no business leaders, New York City partnership, none of these groups. And what would they tell you privately about Tell me, oh, he's, you're right, keep going, he's terrible, but it's great I gotta... you're doing this, because I got this thing, right? Everybody had their own fucking deal, their own issue that, and de Blasio, by the way, you know, bad person, terrible mayor, but not a good, polit smart at politics, right? Understood how to buy people off with the specific thing that they needed to keep them in control, and he did that really well. But leadership is Not standing <laughs> up and saying, here's what is right and wrong. And I understand that by saying this, I am putting myself in harm's way and hurting my own interests, but I'm willing to do it anyway because it's the right thing. I don't see um, much of that at all on the non-far left side here in New York City. And honestly, the lesson that I learned from it was also kind of like, there's no point to this, right? Because I put myself out there. I got the shit kicked out of me for it spent money and achieved nothing. And so um, she's right that we need more civic leadership and, and there's a real problem with it. And just to sort of bring this full circle, that's why we're having these shootings, right? Because you have the far left, extremely good at politics, very opposed to things like stop and frisk or bail or just the penal system and criminal justice and police in general. And they've done a really good job getting their views out there. Both. Not just out there. I mean, it's, it's affected policy, obviously. Yeah. And, and the rest of us, which is the vast, vast majority of us, um, have not really done anything. So, you know, laws that uh, or rules that were used to keep people safe and keep guns off the streets are no longer in effect. Um, and a lot of that is because the the business leadership of the city, the civic leadership of the city, and we have plenty of organizations that purport to be civic leaders in some way, but they're wildly afraid and ineffective. And as a result, we now have a city again where you have to worry about if you're sitting in broad daylight in a car on orchard between Stanton and Houston, which is not a super high crime area, you have to worry about getting shot in the head. Um, that is a clear indictment of the lack of leadership, and so we certainly need more Dick Ravages. Uh Bradley, I'll see you next week. Well, we're we're recording with um with with uh your your text your political text buddies. Jeff Pollock and and Howard Wilson. Yep. Um, that'll be Thursday. Okay. That 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 may be a recurring thing. We're yep. going to do the first one. We've so had Howard on a bunch of times. Jeff, it's his first time. No, Jeff's been on before. Oh, that, no, a long time. A ago. while That's ago. Right. Though, yeah, yeah. During but, COVID. But, yeah, before my days. Yeah. But in any case, it's the first time for the three of you. So we're going to see how that goes. Yeah, very excited for it. Yeah, we, we're going to have had a, a lot of dialogue going. back Yeah, and forth. a lot of a lot of um, what, what what would you call it? There's there's some. Um, it's not shit talking. Yeah, a little it's, bit of shit talking. Well, but that's because you you added a competitive element to it, which is I sent around on Sunday morning <laughs> a list of topics that how do you guys feel about these particular topics, and people gave me their feedback. I like this one. I'd rather not talk about that one. I'm bored by this one. That one's really interesting. Great. And you're like, I'm going to give you each trivia questions and you're going to have to compete <laughs> against each other. And then once you sort of create a competition, then, yeah, that, then the that, shit talking, although to be clear, the shit talking, and this is sort of emblematic of this group, was not everyone saying they're going to dominate. It was me and Jeff saying yeah. Howard's going to dominate completely. He's the one with like a master's in political history and yeah. all of this stuff. Reads too much. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and effectively, and then Howard pushed back and said, you guys are deliberately setting me up for failure. So Very exciting kind of stuff. Talking. Next yep. Thursday. See you next week. Bye.